Section 19 of Mysteries of London, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Keenan. Mysteries of London, Volume 4, by George W. M. Reynolds. The Journey Continued and Concluded. Perdita and her mother exchanged not a word until they reached the high road once more. But when their faces were again turned towards London, the latter exclaimed in a tone of chuckling triumph, "'Twas a lucky chance which threw us in with that gypsy." "'Yes, mother, as far as obtaining a good meal was concerned,' replied Perdita. "'Silly child! It was the old crone's talk that elicited the remark which I just made. Did you not hear the strange facts she suffered to ooze out in her idiotic musings? Did nothing strike you?' "'Yes. Her description of a young man of such divine beauty made so strong an impression upon me, that my very veins appeared to run with lightning," interrupted Perdita. "'Ah!' cried her mother, evidently struck by a sudden thought. "'You were pleased with her allusion to that handsome young gentleman? Well, Perdita, trust me when I declare emphatically that this same young gentleman shall sue at your feet for those favors which unasked you would this moment bestow upon him. Mother, you yourself will soon appear to me to be indulging in idiotic musings, cried Perdita, half in delight, half in contemptuous incredulity. You never saw this young man. You know nothing of him. Know nothing of him, repeated her mother, scornfully. We know enough, Perdita, to compel a whole family to implore our forbearance and our mercy. To reduce that Mr. Hatfield, Lady Georgiana, and their nephew to the necessity of beseeching our silence on their bended knees. Do you really put faith in the rodomontade of that gypsy about the identity of the Mr. Hatfield of whom she spoke with a certain Tom Rain, who had been hanged? demanded Perdita impatiently. Yes, because I know it to be true, ejaculated her mother. Listen, Perdita, you were not born at that time, but it was only a few months before your birth when the whole metropolis was astounded by the sudden discovery that Tom Rain, the highwayman, was indeed alive. I was in London at the time. "'In Newgate, mother?' asked her daughter, as coolly as if it were the most commonplace question. "'Yes, in Newgate, if you must have me be particular in every detail,' answered the old harridan bitterly. "'Where I was born,' remarked Perdita. "'One of the first places I shall request you to show me will be that same Newgate. But go on, I am listening attentively.' "'Well, then, I was in Newgate at the time that all London was astounded by certain discoveries relative to this same Tom Rainford, all brought about in consequence of a dreadful murder committed by that very Benjamin Bones whom you heard the gypsy mention. The story is too long to tell you now, but you shall have it shortly in its fullest details, for it may regard our interests more nearly than you at present imagine. One fact I must, however, state, which is that Thomas Rainford was a famous highwayman who was hanged, and that by some means which never transpired he was rescued from death resuscitated, in fine. He received the royal pardon for all the deeds he had committed, in opposition to the laws, and what afterwards became of him I knew not. Because you had to leave England in pursuance of your sentence, I suppose, mother? added Perdita, inquiringly. Precisely so. And now chance throws us in the way of an old crone who, in the audible musings of dotage, informs us that this same Tom Rain is actually living under a feigned name, I and at the mansion of the Earl of Ellingham. It is clear that the gypsy had never heard of the wondrous fact that Rainford appeared in London disguised as a blackamoor, 
only a few months after his execution, as I may call it, it is evident that the circumstance of his having survived the scaffold was unknown to her and to her companions. Thus was she struck with amazement and surprise, as well she might be under such circumstances, when she beheld him in Lord Ellingham's carriage. But gypsies go so little into great cities and towns, hold so little intercourse with any save their own people, and are so little curious in respect to matters which do not immediately concern themselves, that it is not surprising if the old gypsy had never heard reported the well-known fact of Rainford's resuscitation. Then you presume that this Rainford is now living, honorably and respectably, in London, under the name Hatfield, said Perdita inquiringly, and you mean to use your knowledge of his real name to work out our particular aims? You now comprehend me, daughter, returned the old woman, and you may perhaps begin to understand how his nephew shall become bound to you by silken cords. I have set my mind upon that handsome young man, said Perdita emphatically, and believe me, I shall omit nothing that will tend to gratify my passion. Wanton, voluptuous even as I was, muttered the harridan to herself, I, licentious and depraved as was her father. What are you mumbling to yourself, mother? demanded Perdita. Something about me, I warrant. No harm, no harm, responded the wretch hastily. But to return to the subject of our conversation, Perdita, what do you think of our prospects now? Knowing all we do of this Mr. Hatfield, and able as we are to overwhelm him, his titled wife, and his nephew in disgrace, if we choose to utter a single word. I think that all will go well enough in respect to money, for that we have the means of extorting, said Perdita. But I cannot see how, by such a course, we shall do otherwise than disgust the nephew, and make an enemy of him. Ah, short-sighted girl, ejaculated her mother. We must not commence with extortion. I know that Lady Georgiana Hatfield was very rich when I was a resident in London years ago, and it is not probable that she has become poor since. Then again, this Hatfield or Rainford must be on intimate terms with the Earl of Ellingham, since he and his family are residing at that nobleman's mansion. All this denotes that the young man can command ample funds at will, and the young man then must be ensnared by your wiles. But if you surrender yourself to him immediately— Trust me for knowing how to play my cards well, interrupted Perdita impatiently. But on our arrival in London to-night, where are we to find a dwelling-place? How are we to clothe ourselves decently to-morrow? How, in a word, are we to live until all these grand schemes begin to work? You shall see, Perdita, answered her mother. During my long sojourn in Australia, one person in England wrote to me frequently. One person sent me sums of money occasionally. Otherwise, Perdita, after I obtained my ticket of leave, we should have starved. For the labor of my hands, severely as I toiled, produced not sufficient to maintain us both. This one person lives in London. I know his address, and to his door must we first repair before we can even procure the wherewith to obtain a bed. Is it the friend who, as you told me, interested himself to procure your pardon? demanded Perdita. The friend, the relation, you mean, said her mother hastily. Yes, he is my relation, the only one I possess in the world save yourself, if a daughter can be called by that name. The conversation, which may have served to throw additional light upon the depraved character of these two women, was interrupted by the necessity of stepping to the side of the road to permit a cart, which was on the point of overtaking them, to pass. The vehicle was driven along at a rapid pace by a sturdy, good-natured butcher, and as it was whisking by the two females, 
the pure moonlight falling fully on the handsome countenance of Perdita, enabled the man to catch a glimpse of the surpassing beauty of that face. Instantly pulling up, he said, "'Halloa, my good women, you were out late, or rather early, for tis two o'clock in the morning. "'We are very tired, and are anxious to reach London as soon as possible,' replied Perdita's mother. "'I am going, as one may say, right through London,' observed the butcher. "'In fact, to Oxford Street.' and if you like to have a ride, both of you, I'll put you down at the nearest point to where your business leads you. The old woman greedily snapped at the offer, and the good-natured butcher helped her daughter and herself into the cart, which immediately drove on again at a spanking pace. And now full soon did the myriad lights of London greet the eyes of the travellers, and Perdita felt her heart dilate with ineffable emotions as she drew near that sovereign city of a thousand towers, pinnacles, and spires that mighty Babylon in which all her hopes, her aims, her ambitious views were centered. A misty haze of light, resembling a faintly illuminated fog, appeared to hang over the vast metropolis. And as the vehicle approached nearer and nearer still, the countless dwellings began to stand out in relief from the bosom of that dimly lustrous shroud. On, on the travelers go. The houses are scattered along the road but in a short time they become continuous ranges of habitations. And now it may be airily said that the wheels of the cart rattle on the pavement of London. But a feeling of disappointment seizes upon Perdita. Instead of lordly mansions, she sees dingy-looking tenements of no considerable size, and presenting anything but an imposing appearance, especially at that somber hour. Nevertheless, the farther she advances, the more satisfied does she become and now the travellers reach that great junction-point for crossroads, where stands the elephant and castle. The tap is open. The butcher stops, alights, and disappears inside the establishment. In a few minutes he returns with a steaming hot glass of brandy and water, for a good-natured fellow is this butcher, and he kindly proffers it to the two females. It was not because Perdita was so handsome that he did it. No, it was through pure kindness and as much for the sake of her mother as of herself. Nor did the two females require much pressing to partake of the welcome beverage, and while they were drinking their glass, their good-hearted friend hurried back to the tap to enjoy his own reeking jorum. And now away they speed again, up the Waterloo Road, over the bridge. Then and there it was that a splendid and soul-stirring spectacle burst upon the sight of Perdita. For an instant her admiration was riveted to that magnificent piece of masonry, constituting the finest viaduct of the kind in the whole world. But in the next she threw her glances right and left, embracing thus rapidly all the splendid features of a scene bathed in silver by the cloudless lamp of night. The bosom of the mighty Thames reflected the lights on the banks and the bridges, those very lights tracing the course of the proud stream and marking its ample width. Then her looks dwelt on the mighty dome of St. Paul's, rearing its colossal head to the deep purple summer sky. And lastly they ran rapidly along the northern shore, embracing each point of interest, until they stopped at the new houses of Parliament, so gleamingly white in the chaste luster of the moon. "'Yes, mother,' she whispered, in an exulting tone, "'this is indeed a stupendous city.' "'You have seen nothing of it as yet,' was the reply. "'But here we must alight,' added the old woman." the moment the cart reached the strand. The wanderers accordingly descended, and, having proffered their hearty thanks to the butcher for his kindness, they continued their journey on foot, 
their way now lying in the direction of Brompton. Along the strand they proceeded, through Spring Gardens, into St. James's Park, Perdita admiring the fine buildings which she passed, for the morning was now breaking, and each grand feature of that part of the metropolis emerged slowly and majestically from obscurity. Perdita's mother, in pointing out Carlton House to her daughter, observed, When I was last in England, George the Fourth was king, and that was his favorite residence. They proceeded through the park, and now Perdita beheld the abode of the Queen of England, that palace on which so much of the country's money has been shamefully squandered, and with the arrangements of which Her Majesty is still dissatisfied. God help Victoria, if she cannot contrive to make herself comfortable at Buckingham House. We sincerely hope that she will always find such quarters gratuitously provided for her, and that she will learn not to grumble at them. Contrast that palace with the working man's home, and then let us see whether Parliament would be justified in voting another sixpence to enlarge or improve the sovereign residence. Oh, how loathsome! How revolting to our mind are the caprices, the selfishness, and the insolence of royalty! The two wanderers now entered the spacious district of Pimlico, which they traversed painfully, for they had become almost as wearied as when they were toiling on between Dartford and Shooter's Hill. "'Shall we soon be there, mother?' inquired Perdita, her handsome countenance bearing a careworn expression, as if patience and strength were alike nearly exhausted. "'In less than twenty minutes now,' was the answer, "'we shall reach the place whither we are bound.' "'And suppose your nephew should not be in London?' said Perdita. "'Ah, now you have touched the very cord which vibrates with anguish to my heart's core,' exclaimed the old woman. "'But let us not yield to despondency,' she added, almost immediately. "'No, it is useless to meet evils halfway,' observed Perdita. The two proceeded in silence for upwards of a quarter of an hour, until they reached a particular part of Brompton, when the elder wanderer said, "'It must be somewhere about here that he lives.' Ah, number seven, yes, this is the house, Perdita, she added, indicating a beautiful cottage residence, standing alone in the midst of a pleasant garden. But it will be useless for you to accompany me, continued the hag. On the contrary, many reasons, which I will hereafter explain, render it advisable that my nephew should not come to know you by sight. Just as you please, mother, said Perdita, in the quiet way which was habitual to her when she had no inclination either on one side or the other. There is a large stone at the angle of the road yonder. I will rest there until you return. Do so, replied the old woman, and, having paused for a few moments to dwell admiringly on the fine symmetry of her daughter's form, as Perdita repaired slowly towards the point indicated, the harridan advanced to the door of the house in which her relation dwelt. She knocked and rang, and in a few minutes a servant-maid, throwing open a window, inquired who it was that came at such an unseasonable hour. "'Is your master at home?' demanded the old woman. "'He is, but—thank God!' ejaculated the visitor, considerably relieved by this announcement. "'You must inform him that an elderly female wishes to speak to him on particular business.' "'I cannot venture to disturb him,' answered the servant. "'Come at eight o'clock. Master and Mrs. will be up then.' At this moment another window was opened, and a gentleman, who had evidently slipped on a dressing-gown in great haste, appeared at the casement, exclaiming, I will see you now, at once. And in less than a minute the old woman was admitted into the dwelling by the gentleman who had thus addressed her. Not a word was uttered. 
merely hasty glances of recognition were exchanged, and those looks dubious on her part and reserved on his, until they entered a parlor, the door of which the gentleman carefully closed, while his visitress sank exhausted upon a sofa. "'I'm retired at last, Clarence,' she said, in a low and hoarse voice, for she was now evidently much moved at finding herself in the presence of her relative, and by no means so confident as she had appeared to her daughter with regard to the reception she was likely to experience. "'Yes, returned against my express desire, against the solemn promise that you sent me to remain in the colony if I procured your pardon,' exclaimed Mr. Villiers, for it was he, in a reproachful tone. "'Would you have had me bury myself in that horrible place of exile?' demanded his aunt, Mrs. Torrens, or Mrs. Slingsby, or whatever she now denominated herself. "'I would have had you keep your pledge so sacredly given,' replied Clarence. "'And on my side I should have fulfilled my engagement by remitting you forty pounds every half-year. Why, why have you come back to England?' "'Because I would sooner die than remain in a colony where I have endured so much,' responded the woman. "'Yes, you have endured much indeed,' said Mr. Villiers, still more bitterly than before. "'But it has been your own fault. Do you remember the interviews I had with you in prison, both prior and subsequent to your condemnation? Did you not exhibit every sign of the deepest contrition, utter every possible vow of amendment? And what were the results? Arrived in the colony, you became unruly, profligate, a perfect scandal where all is scandalous, shameless where everything is shameful.' "'Listen to me, Clarence,' exclaimed his aunt, rising from the sofa and advancing towards him. "'It is so easy to reproach, but not so easy to admit of extenuation for guilt. As God is my judge, my penitence in Newgate was sincere, my contrition unfeigned. I even longed for the hour of my departure to arrive, that I might forever quit a country where I had played so vile a part, and to some extent retrieve my character in a penal colony. But when I set foot on board the convict ship, I found myself thrown into the depths of a very sink of immorality, plunged into an infernal stew of profligacy, from which escape was impossible. I threw myself on my knees before the surgeon, and implored him to remove me from that dreadful assemblage of fiends in female shape. He laughed at me, and bade me return to my place. Then my companions abused and ill-treated me for having dared to complain and the babe which I bore in my arms was made the subject of the bitterest taunts and most cutting jibes. I had named her Perdita, as you well know, that her lost and hopeless condition, through the infamy of her mother, might ever be retained fresh in my memory, and that the necessity of toiling hard and honorably for her might be impressed on my soul, even by the warning nature of that very name. But, oh, those wretches, with whom I was forced to associate, leveled the most cruel jeers and jests against me on account of that innocent babe, because she was born in Newgate. And nothing is so galling, nothing so terribly afflicting, nothing so poignantly cutting as to insult a woman through the medium of her illegitimate, helpless babe. My God, what bitter tears I shed on board that convict ship! Tears which seemed to sear my very countenance as they fell, so scalding were they. Then the frightful scenes which were enacted in our cabin, the quarreling that took place, the imprecations that accompanied even the simplest remark, the obscene tales that were told. Oh, it was horrible, horrible. I struggled against the contamination as mortal being never struggled before. But it was like a combat between a drowning person and the fury of a whelming torrent. A vain, ineffectual, and useless fight, 
in which I felt myself to be completely powerless. Until, in despair, I resigned myself to the flood that was whirling me along in its triumphant course, and I found relief even in drinking of that feculent, fetid stream from which there was no escape. Yes, thus was I drawn down into the whirlpool of immoralities and profligacies on the brink of which the law placed me. And if my vows of contrition, my asseverations of penitence proved so many delusions, you must blame the system to which I was subjected, and not myself. And do you mean, then, to inform me that you endeavored to be moral, reserved, pious, and tranquil on board the convict ship, but that it was impossible to avoid being dragged into the common abyss of depravity? demanded Clarence, now speaking in a mild and even compassionate tone. Most solemnly do I swear that such is the fact, exclaimed his aunt, with an emphasis which spoke volumes in favor of her sincerity. Then are you to be pitied, poor woman, said Clarence, and the government of that day most bear all the blame of your relapse and subsequent depravity. But where is your daughter Perdita? She is in the neighborhood, waiting for me, was the answer. I did not choose to bring her beneath your roof. Indeed, not save necessity, necessity the most stern, should have led me hither. The accounts which I received from a correspondent at Sydney spoke, alas, most unfavorably of your daughter, observed Clarence. My God, could you not at least have saved her from entering the paths that lead to perdition? Behold now, how ready you are to blame me, cried his aunt, in a voice expressive of vexation. I was allotted as a servant to a free settler in the penal colony, and the man made me his mistress. There was no compliance on my part in the first instance. T'was absolute compulsion. Then I yielded to my fate, seeing that it was useless to contend against it. I had to work hard all day, and the moment Perdita was able to run alone, she played in the streets with the other poor children of Sydney. I could not prevent it, do all I would to endeavor to keep her indoors. Well, at last I obtained a ticket of leave, and tried to earn a livelihood by the toil of my own hands. But to do this I was compelled to be out all day. And then, where was Perdita? Where was she? almost screamed the woman, becoming much excited. Why, lost, as her name implies. Not lost as you lose an object and can find it no more, but lost morally, irretrievably lost. Tis true that I imparted to her as much knowledge as I myself possessed, or had leisure to instill into her, and that to do this I deprived myself of my natural rest. But how could I teach her virtue? How could I read the Bible with her? My story was known throughout the colony, and Perdita learnt before even she had intelligence to understand the meaning of the facts that she was a bastard, born in Newgate, the great criminal prison of London, and that her mother was everything infamous and vile. My God, circumstances would not allow me to nurture her in moral ways, even if I had possessed the inclination. But by the time she was old enough to learn, I had myself become as deeply steeped in profligacy as any other woman in the colony. Can you wonder, then, that she soon fell into the ways of vice? Beautiful as she was, and is, she soon attracted notice. And your fine English officers, the gentlemen sent out to protect the colony, they were the authors of her ruin, and they encouraged her in a career of infamy. Oh, Clarence, it is a frightful thing for me to stand before you, you who are my own nephew, and have to make such horrible revelations. But you reproach me for my own wickedness. You would seek to represent me as the cause of my daughter's wickedness, and I am forced to explain to you the appalling nature 
of the influences acting upon us, and the circumstances surrounding us. Now, now I could weep in humiliation, but an hour hence I shall be obdurate and hardened as ever. The world has made me so. And now what do you propose to do? inquired Clarence. It is impossible for me even to advise you in the frightful position in which you are placed, and since you have acted so completely in opposition to my counsel by returning to England. Pecuniary assistance, that I can afford you to a limited amount. Give me fifty guineas, Clarence, and you shall never see me more, interrupted his aunt. I will spare you a hundred, answered the generous-hearted young man, and, quitting the room, he returned in a few minutes, bringing the money in a bag. Here, he said, take that, my poor aunt, and may God make it prosper in your hands. But, oh, suffer not your daughter to continue in the ways of vice and depravity. Remember that she possesses an immortal soul, and that there is another world in which an account must be given for the conduct pursued in this. The old woman made no answer, but, clutching the bag eagerly, she secured it amongst her tattered garments. Then, ashamed of the greedy impatience which she had manifested, and seeking to avert her nephew's attention from the fact by turning the conversation into another channel, she said, I hope you continue to enjoy that happiness, Clarence, which yourself and your excellent Adelaide so much deserve. Thank God, my felicity is as complete as man's can be in this world, was the reply. Having now for upwards of nineteen years held the good situation which my kind patron, the Earl of Ellingham, gave me, I have enjoyed a certain means of existence, have acquired influential friends, and have been enabled to rear my sons and daughters in a way which I hope will be salutary to them on their entrance into life. And that man, my husband, have you heard of him lately? inquired Villiers aunt, in a low tone and hesitating way. Never since the occasion, and that is now nine years ago, when he wrote to announce the death of poor Rosamond at Geneva. I mentioned that fact to you in a letter which accompanied one of the remittances I made to Sydney on your behalf. And from that time you have received no tidings of my husband? Not once, replied Villiers. Whether he be alive or dead, what has become of him I cannot tell you. This uncertainty relative to her father's fate is a cause of uneasiness to Adelaide. But every state and station in life has its annoyances and its sorrows. Poor Rosamond! She fell into a slow decline shortly after leaving England. And for nearly ten years did she linger on, wasting away. Adelaide and I saw her once during that period. We visited Switzerland on purpose. Then how deeply was my wife shocked when she beheld the wreck that remained of her once lovely and blooming sister. But I cannot dwell upon that episode in our lives. No, no, exclaimed Perdita's mother, now in haste to depart. I will not distress you, she added, with a hypocritical appearance of sympathy, by exacting the painful narrative from you. Farewell, Clarence, farewell. The generous-hearted Villiers proffered his hand to his aunt, that aunt who was once so fine a woman, so elegantly dressed, and the mistress of a splendid mansion, but who was now hideous to look upon, clothed in rags, and as yet homeless on the face of the earth. For a few instants her heart swelled with profound emotions as she pressed that hand which was thus kindly extended to her, and tears rose to the very brims of her eyes, but did not run over. Then she hurried away from his presence, and the moment she set foot on the threshold of the dwelling, or rather when its door closed behind her, she subdued the feelings that had well-nigh overpowered her, and gave all her attention, all her interest, 
all her thoughts to the precious bag which she had concealed amongst her garments. "'Well, mother, I thought you were never coming back,' cried Perdita, in a reproachful tone. Then, perceiving by the old woman's countenance that she had good news, she allowed her own to brighten up, as she hurried to meet her. "'Perdita, we have now the means—' "'Of obtaining shelter and a breakfast, I hope? "'Of purchasing good clothes, taking fine lodgings. "'Oh, then your nephew, or relation of some kind, whatever he may be, "'has behaved well,' cried the young woman, overjoyed by this intelligence. "'A hundred guineas, Perdita, a hundred guineas in this bag!' exclaimed her mother, "'shaking the precious object of her avaricious worship. "'Then, again concealing it beneath her rags, she said, "'But come, Perdita!' let us betake ourselves to another quarter of the town, for I have promised Clarence Villiers that he shall see my face no more. The old hag and the handsome young woman retraced their way into the heart of London, and, arriving in the neighborhood of Covent Garden, they entered an early breakfast-house, where they partook of a copious meal, to which appetite and good spirits enabled them to do honor. The repast being dispatched, the elder of the two wanderers had a few minutes whispering conversation with the landlady of the establishment, the result of which was that a bedroom was speedily placed at the disposal of the guests, who retired to partake of a few hours' most necessary repose. It was near midday when the mother and daughter rose, and then another interview with the landlady was shortly followed, in obedience to the instructions given her, by the arrival of a woman who sold second-hand female apparel, and who came laden with bandboxes. The contents thereof were speedily examined, and the wanderers having selected the articles which seemed most appropriate for their temporary use, the slop-seller was well paid and dismissed. And now Perdita and her parent began to assume each a very different appearance from that which they had so recently worn. Copious ablutions and decent clothing made the elder less revoltingly ugly, and the younger more strikingly beautiful. As they thus performed their toilet together, in the little chamber of the coffee-house, the mother surveyed, with pride and admiration, the features and form of her daughter, calculating at the same time how large a fortune the judicious sale of such loveliness was likely to amass. While on her side the young woman stood in superb complacency before the glass, exercising a thousand little arts to render the details of her toilette as perfect as circumstances would admit. Perdita's dark brown hair was combed out with the utmost care, and arranged in simple bands glossy and massive on either side of her fine forehead. By chance she had obtained from the second-hand dealer a gown which precisely fitted her, and which, being very low in the body, displayed her full and swelling bust to its greatest advantage. The darned stockings and the clumsy shoes were superseded by more fitting articles, and now the robust leg, the slender ankle, and the long narrow foot were as faultless in proportion as if a sculptor had modeled them to his own exquisite but voluptuous taste. A neat straw bonnet and an ample shawl completed her attire. And now well, but by no means splendidly nor elegantly dressed, Perdita appeared a creature so exceedingly handsome that even her mother was surprised as much as she was delighted. And, as for the old woman herself, she had assumed an air of greater respectability than at first might have appeared possible, seeing that her look was sinister and repulsive, and her countenance so weather-beaten and marred by suffering. Forth went the mother and daughter into the streets of London, and their first care was to purchase a variety of articles of attire of a far better kind than that which they had just procured. 
likewise a little jewelry and the necessary paraphernalia of the toilet. The goods were all sent to the coffee-house where they had hired a chamber, and a couple of large trunks were the last objects they bought, and which were dispatched to the same place. These matters having been accomplished, the old woman conducted her daughter into the fashionable quarter of Regent Street, and there pretty to be held enough to excite her wonder and her admiration. The magnificent shops, the fine buildings, the splendid equipages, and the handsomely dressed gentlemen on horseback all shared her attention in their turns. Nor was she an observer unobserved, for many an old voluptuary and stripling gallant paused to bestow a second glance upon the plainly but decently dressed young female whose so countenance was so strikingly beautiful, and in whose looks there was a subdued wantonness engendering the most voluptuous sensations. To Perdita's mother how altered did London seem! Here was a street which she had never seen before. There a street had been pulled down to make way for some great thoroughfare. Here buildings once familiar had disappeared. There strange edifices had sprung up. In Regent Street she looked for the shops at which she had been accustomed to deal long years before, when she dwelt in the immediate neighborhood, and when she was deemed a saint. But most of the establishments she sought had changed their proprietors and their nature. A grocer's having become a bookseller's, a milliner's a china warehouse, and so on. She had a great mind to pass into Burlington Street, but she had not quite the necessary courage to do that, at least for the present. Having threaded Regent Street from Oxford Circus to Waterloo Place, the two women turned into Pall Mall West, along which they proceeded for a short distance, when the mother suddenly clasped her daughter's arm almost violently, exclaiming in a hasty whisper at the same time, "'This is the mansion of the Earl of Ellingham.' Scarcely were these words uttered when the door was opened, and forth came Charles Hatfield. Passing by the two females without noticing that he had immediately become the object of their most earnest attention, and indeed, without observing them at all, so deeply was he absorbed in thought, he moved on at a slow and uncertain pace, as if he had merely come out to seek the fresh air, and having no particular destination. Yes, he had indeed become the cynosure of attraction on the part of the old woman and her daughter the former devouring him with her eyes, in order to read his character and disposition in his countenance, and assure herself from that physiognomical perusal that he was fitted for her purpose, and the latter embracing with a look of ardent, wanton scrutiny every feature of his fine face and every proportion of his symmetrical form. He passed on, and for a few minutes the mother and daughter preserved a deep silence, each occupied with her own thoughts. That young man may be rendered pliant and docile according to our will, said the old woman at length. He is beyond all doubt the one whom the gypsy alluded to in such glowing colors, observed Perdita, with a voluptuous languor in the eyes, a flushing of the cheeks, and a slow but deep heaving of the bosom. And he has something on his mind, that is clear, added the old woman. Which we will soon make him divulge to us, said Perdita. But how do you intend to proceed in order to form his acquaintance? Oh, nothing is more easy, returned her mother. In the first place, we must take handsome lodgings. I know of a nice, quiet, retired street in the neighborhood. Come along, Perdita, we must not waste valuable time. The two women repaired direct to Suffolk Street, Pall Mall East, and in the window of a house of handsome appearance they saw a card announcing furnished apartments to be let. The lodgings were speedily inspected and hired the prepayment of a month's rent immediately ensuring the good opinion of the landlady and rendering references unnecessary. 
Back to the coffee-house in the vicinity of Covent Garden did the wanderers hasten, and in a few minutes all their packages and new purchases were transported to a hackney coach, which was fetched from the nearest stand. The coffee-house keeper was liberally rewarded, and a handsome fee was bestowed upon the driver of the vehicle to induce him to state, in case of being questioned in Suffolk Street, that he had brought the ladies from some respectable hotel. All these matters being arranged, the mother and daughter proceeded in the hackney coach to their new lodgings, where they at once took up their quarters under the imposing name of Mrs. and Miss Fitzharding. Had the worthy butcher who, a few hours previously, took pity on the two ragged, sinking mendicants, and sustained their strength and courage by means of hot brandy and water at the Elephant and Castle, had he now beheld Mrs. and Miss Fitzharding sitting down, elegantly attired, at a well-spread dinner-table, and at the fashionable time of six in the evening, he would not for an instant have supposed that the way-worn beggars of the morning's adventure and the ladies of Suffolk Street, Pall Mall, were identical. Or if, by chance, he should have recognized Perdita's handsome countenance, he would have thought that the delusions of enchantment had been practiced upon him or her. And now we have prepared the way, with due prefatory explanation, for one of the most striking and remarkable episodes in this narrative an episode showing how Perdita's arts and Perdita's beauty accomplished aims which women of less enterprise than herself and her mother would have deemed impossible. Oh, fatal influence! That influence which the depraved and wanton Perdita wielded by means of her transcendent charms. End of section 19. Recording by Brian Keenan.